Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells. I'm the creator of this show. I'm also the founder of the Feely Human Collective. And this is episode 261 on Dissociation Made Simple with Dr. Jamie Marich. Dr. Marich and I explore why safety is never guaranteed, being cool with Jesus, but not cool with what the church has done to Jesus. I don't know as one of the most spiritual phrases in our vocabulary and an in-depth look at dissociative identity disorder and why it's normal to dissociate. Dr. Jamie has a new book out called, same title as this episode, Dissociation Made Simple. I highly recommend it. You can go to Redefine Therapy, redefinetherapy.com, and learn more about the book, buy it, and uh, there's a bunch of other great resources on that on that. Uh, website. Um, Really cherish this episode. I hope you love it as much as I did. Uh, Dr. Jamie is just give them a follow on Instagram. Um, The links will be in the show notes at uh, feelyhuman.co. And make sure to order uh, the book, Dissociation Dissociation Made Simple. It is uh, available now wherever you get your books, but go to redefinetherapy.com to learn more about it. Before we go, uh, as a reminder, this is actually the penultimate guest episode of this podcast, You Me Empathy. There will be one more guest episode next week, and then I will be recording a final episode to close out this chapter of my life, um, maybe your life. <laughs> if you've been a part of this You Me Empathy journey with me over the past almost six years, um, thank you. Um, it's been wonderful. It's been so nourishing, and I am so grateful. I'll never forget it, truly. And I know I've I've heard from many of you that that it's hard to hear that it's ending. This podcast ending that that um, that is just hard, and it is hard. I feel that too. It's not. I, I don't make this decision ease with ease. It's it's been a tough decision, and I feel it's the right one. I I've been. Wanting to shift my creative energy elsewhere, and um, and uh, that comes with grief, as as all big changes do in our lives. I will never forget you. Me empathy will always be available to listen to. All two hundred and sixty one episodes of the podcast will always be available to refer back to anytime. But for now, closing this chapter. And as, as I've been saying, uh, you know, I could come back maybe in 2024 with a new podcast. Who knows? I love the medium, so you never know. But for now, the best place to connect with me and to continue this journey of, of empathy and of feelings and of all of these things that I love, uh, make sure to join the Feely Human community. If you go to feelyhuman.co slash membership, you can learn more about the community. There's a free level as well as a paid level. And we just do a bunch of cool shit. Like uh, we have an emotional check-in series. We have a movie club called Movies That Make Us Feel. We, we're doing a learning series where we watch documentaries or TED Talks and then talk about it. We have weekly sessions on deep dive topics and just just a beautiful community of feely humans who are empathetic, vulnerable, curious, soft, wanting to grow our capacity for listening and being present and examining our bias and all of that good stuff that that we do as humans to to bump into things, to to grow and to maybe lean a little bit more into some discomfort um, together, you know, because we're mirrors for each other. We learn and we grow uh, in connection with one another. So that's why community is so important to me. Uh, that's why I started this membership community for Feely Human. And I would love for you to be a part of it. So uh, if you ever have any questions about it, you can just reach out to me at feelyhuman at gmail.com or go to uh, feelyhuman.co slash membership and learn more about it and join. We would love to have you. Okay. Let's get to the episode. Again, this is episode 261 on Dissociation Made Simple with Dr. Jamie Marich.
Welcome to You, Me, Empathy, the official podcast of the Feely Human Collective. On this show, we explore the struggles, the triumphs, the brights, and the darks we face as humans trying to be human on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. You, Me, Empathy was created so that we can be witness to our collective humanity through the lens of empathy, vulnerability, and emotional curiosity. We aim to destigmatize mental health, lead fiercely with our hearts, feel our feelings without shame and judgment. And share our courageous stories so that others may feel less alone and more connected as feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a brave place designed to inspire the beauty in each of us because each of us, in all of our kaleidoscopic parts, makes up a magical whole that deserves to be seen. Today, I'm grateful to be here with clinical trauma specialist, facilitator of transformational experiences, founder of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness, and author of the new book, Dissociation Made Simple, a stigma-free guide to embracing your dissociative mind and navigating daily life. It's Dr. Jamie Marich. Hello. Hello, Noam. Thank you for the beautiful welcome. Oh my gosh. It was getting a little long in the tooth and I was I was losing it there in the end, but I I I made it. I'm grateful Great. you're here. I'm grateful to be here. So uh Jamie, we always start with an emotional check-in. How are you feeling? I'm actually sick at the moment. I'm getting over a sickness. I'm still present enough to be here with you because it's the lingering cough part mm-hmm. of an illness. So we, you may hear us coughing together, like you said, empathetic response at some point during this. So, but other than than sick, I'm just very happy and grateful to have the platform. I I don't take the privilege for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. When when you're sick, um, you had mentioned before you you tend to like let your guard down a little bit. What mm. what does that mean to you? Like what what is what yeah. does vulnerability mean to you? Like what is yeah. like letting your guard down mean to someone like you? So I learned a very interesting lesson about this when I was a younger person, and I I know even as I tell this story, I'm treading into this ground of. If people are really feeling sick and they have to opt out of something, please opt out of something because mm. I think COVID has taught us that and and whatnot. But as a kid, um, I was often expected to do things like play softball sick, you know, like this end, tail end sick, not like in, in the heart of it. Um, I was also a figure skater, uh, and I would often do that either when I was sick or on my menstrual cycle. Mm. And I noticed I just wasn't overthinking things as much. Interesting. Okay. It, it was it was a weird phenomenon because I would think I would do worse when I was feeling sick, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm so attentive to the body, or mm-hmm. I I think that is probably knowing what I know now the most plausible explanation. Hmm. But I I think you know to tie to your other question of of what does vulnerability mean? It is this art of knowing when you can let your guard down and then accepting the invitation. Because I, mm. I really like that even in a lot of this teaching on vulnerability and, and challenges for vulnerability, there is caution around you decide who you get to be vulnerable with. Yeah. You can honor your boundaries with that. Uh, and I have found that to be an important part of being safe enough in my vulnerability. Mm. I've also learned though, if you noticed... I use the phrase safe enough, which I use quite a bit in my work, because you'll often hear therapists talk about safety, 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 safe places. And the reality is, as a cis woman, especially in American culture, I don't think I'll ever feel 100% totally safe in every context. Uh, As a survivor of trauma, safety is something I have to negotiate on a relationship by relationship basis. I like this idea of sinking into safe moments and safe people Mm. instead of safe places. And even in my own personal therapy, uh, I've developed a cognition of I can feel a sense of safety within myself, Mm -hmm. but 100% safety is never guaranteed. And I know that sounds like a 
hard punch potentially coming from a therapist. Yet I've learned to really sink into this life without being so threatened by it, by asking, am I safe enough in this context Mm -hmm. to share enough of what I need to share? Yet I also know I have people who I'm completely safe to share with who I may need to, or what I may need to. Yeah, that is um, such a crucial point about safety, and thank you for sharing it. Um, we don't hear it enough, I, I think. I, I, I agree. Um, the idea of a safe space is bandied about quite a lot nowadays. Mm-hmm. I run this community, and I always say, we, safety, like, we can't presume safety ever. Exactly. Because, right? like, everyone mm-hmm. is bringing their own situation, their own experiences, their own identities, all the intersectionality of the human experience is part of that, right? You as a cis woman, me as a cis man, you know, others um, are bringing other things, right? That have Mm -hmm. historical context, that have their own experiences. Um, It's something that we can work toward in finding maybe our safe people or our safe spaces, but Mm -hmm. it takes effort, right? It takes work, takes curiosity. That it does. It does take a lot of work. Yeah. That's what I've learned in my journey. Lots mm. of therapy, lots of connecting with people, lots of taking risks. Cause I mm. think that is something that often gets overlooked in this journey of transformation or journey towards healing or journey to even find safety, that it does come with a great degree of risk. Yet I was fortunate to learn very early on in my personal journey, if I don't take the risk, I'm going to stay stuck. And I could have done that. I had the right to do that, yet I didn't want to. Mm. Why? Why didn't you want to? Because it felt so miserable. And I think I could reflect on that by saying, so I'm a person who's in long-term recovery from addiction and a lot of mental health concerns. And I don't know, some listeners may relate to this this notion that I was two years sober from chemicals and was subjectively living a better life, yet there was a part of me that still wanted to die. Mm. And that was dealing with a lot of mental health crap. And it felt, oh, and crap is my own personal stuff. I'm not saying mental health is crap. Yes. Um, hmm. And it was like to live with all of that. And then without my numbing agent of choice was just this very, very miserable place Mm. and this very hamster wheel of resentment type of place. And I just needed to get out of that uh, because many people I've heard in recovery have shared this, that there's, there's this dark place that we can get to where we want to stay sober, but we also want to die. And that was me for a good early part of that journey until I did more work on the mental health, on my spiritual life, on really unpacking a lot of the baggage I had learned Mm. that wasn't serving me. Mm. I'm grateful that you're here. I'm great uh, on the podcast and on this Mm. pale blue dot. I, we hear, I mean, is it fair to say, so I am, two and a half no two and a quarter years sober from alcohol great and i i i think about someone like my brother as an example i'm very close with one of my brothers he's a very sweet guy he lives with schizoaffective disorder Mm. and it it originally sort of presented in 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 sort of heavy alcohol use or drug use and the way that i've reflected on it since and obviously like we're we're each unique humans but the way that i've reflected on it and he's reflected on it since is that that was maybe a symptom of of some other mental health stuff that was going on that wasn't mm-hmm. being addressed or cared for mm-hmm. is that how you look at it in in your case i think most addictions start as a symptom of something that's unaddressed yeah And that doesn't then make it any less of an addiction to address when it develops. And I want to be very careful because fundamentally as a professional, I believe people have the right to choose the language and the path that best serves them. Yes. Yet I know for me, if I would have stayed so fixated on 
well, I'm drinking or I'm using drugs because of my dissociation or because of my trauma or because of this or because of that, that was a big part of what kept me stuck in a rut. And I'm somebody who found a pretty traditional path to addiction recovery. I got sober in the 12 steps. Yeah, the 12 steps were not enough. I ultimately needed trauma therapy and work with other spiritual healers. And so for me, even though I think the link between unhealed trauma and mental health and addiction is so powerful, we can't discount it. I also know once the addiction develops, it still has to be addressed regardless Mm. of what we were medicating. So I think any of us who were addicted started as medicating something. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. And since you brought up AA and and sobriety, mm-hmm. I, I did reach out to my community and 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 Clementine asked, um, well she said, oh my I'll, I'm just gonna read it verbatim because sure. it's very very please. sweet. Clementine says, OMG, okay, please tell her thank you for all the free resources during COVID. And please tell her I've recommended her trauma and the 12 steps, 12 steps to so many therapists, clients, and recovery people. So I guess my question is, does she still find recovery in AA? It's where I got sober and I know it was for her too, but people can be so rigid and invalidating. I'm still sober and I want the community and a sponsor, but I don't believe God has a plan for me because I'm extra special. I would yeah. love to hear her talk more about faith, community, sobriety, authenticity, as it gives me so much comfort when she creates meaning around it. Thank you, Clementine, for the beautiful compliment uh, and and your recommendation of the book. So where my relationship to AA, I will say my relationship to the 12 steps and my relationship to AA are two different things because I still very much work the steps every day of my life. The steps Mm. are ingrained in me. I see them as the greatest hits of the spiritual traditions that (laughs) I really love. And that's the words of Steve Danziger, one of my buddies who wrote the foreword to the book. So yes, I pray the third and step seven step prayer every morning. I pray the 11 step prayer every night. That is very much a part of me. I don't like going to most meetings that are out there now. I'll be honest. So I, I know finding a good meeting fit can be very hard especially as you progress in your recovery and feel that a lot of people aren't really speaking your language. I was fortunate in my later years to find an amazing home group uh, in my hometown. It was the LGBT meeting where I found just a lot of good rebel AA, as I like to call it. And so even though I don't go to many actual meetings anymore, I still have a very active community of people who are on an abstinence-based path of recovery and who the 12 steps are meaningful for them. So for instance, it was at that home group that that I love, the LGBT home group, where I met my current sponsor, Daryl, who is an 80-year-old gay man. And he's the absolute perfect sponsor for me Hmm. because he is the it's the first sponsorship. And I've had good sponsorship through the years, yet as he sponsored me these last six or seven years, it's the kind of relationship where it's no holds barred. We can really, really talk about anything. And there's just a lot of wisdom he has to share with me as somebody 35 plus years sober and uh, just a lot of life wisdom. And I remember, and this might be helpful for Clementine or other folks, when I chose Daryl to sponsor me, a big reason is that he and his husband, Mike, were out in the state of Ohio for like over 50 years at that point. Or close to 50 years at that point. And I was very much filled with the sense of, I want what they have to be that comfortable in themselves and or that willing to take a risk Mm -hmm. to be themselves. And even though Daryl's my sponsor, Mike's a very important relationship to me too. So I really did like that advice I got early on to pick people who who have what you want. Mm. And I, I, my best friend, my person I consider my best friend is also somebody in recovery. We met 12, 13 years ago in the room. She's like a sister to me. So even if technical meetings aren't still a part of your program, who is your family of choice that holds you accountable to the values of sobriety and spirituality that you want in your life? Yeah, that's beautiful. Does, does, how does the, I mean, you mentioned the, um, the prayer, Mm -hmm. 
how else does faith or spirituality show up in your in your life? Yeah, so I got a pretty wild journey with that. I was raised by one Catholic parent and one evangelical parent, both who were very devout in their ways. And I got a lot of damage, especially on the evangelical side. Mm, And yeah, so I came out of it. uh, Actually, as I look back on it now, retrospectively, God and I have always been cool. It's the church. And I think even Jesus and I have been cool. It's just what church has done to Jesus. And I'm grateful for me, it was very much the 12 steps that helped me unpack that the whole idea of God of my understanding, because it, it helped me to find a a God, a higher power that loves me. Um, And it also really helped to cultivate and engender a respect for what so many other faith traditions teach and being able to see what the common threads are in those traditions. Mm-hmm. Because if anybody listening to this grew up evangelical or Catholic, you likely got a lot of what we now tenderly yet accurately call Christian supremacy or Christianity is the best. And unless you adopt Christianity, everything else is either you're going to hell, which is part of the messaging I got, or okay, we'll be in, the Catholics were a little more tolerant. Like we'll be in community, we'll be in community with you, but you're still not as good as us. Yes. A lot of righteousness. Oh yes. So as I got to know people of other faith traditions, this is where I consider my love of travel to be Mm -hmm. something that broadened my spiritual horizons and living in the dorms in college, just meeting other people other than those in the Christian and or Catholic bubble I just saw that there's a great big world out there and there's so many ways that God expresses themselves and spirit and divine and whatever you want to call it. And uh, so, yeah, the, the steps really gave me or the program initially gave me so much leaning into God of my understanding that was very helpful. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot of um, you talk about, being at the dorms and experiencing other cultures, there's a lot of empathy inlaid in that, right? Yes. Because you're finding new perspectives. You're getting, I mean, the the issue that I've always, and it's still sort of like, I still hold it a little bit uh, in, a, in an anger spot in my heart because I had two evangelical parents and they were very abusive with it. They wielded it like a, mm-hmm. like a cannon, you know? And, mm-hmm. And to this day, like it, it, as someone who like talks very openly about the importance of curiosity and empathy and, and, and listening, um, those tenants feel at times, I, I know this is not fair, but feel in the way that my parents specifically use it opposite of how they see the world and, and view the world and hold themselves. It's just a, a narrow framing and, and, inside that narrow frame and there's no everything outside of it right is is wrong or scary or whatever it may be and and that's it's upsetting i don't know upsetting is a good word other (laughs) feeling adjectives i would use to describe my experience over the years would include activating enraging yes sad i've had a lot of sadness and all of these have been fodder for therapy Grist mm-hmm. for the mill. <laughs> and actually the subject, I know you know about my new book on dissociation, but the next project that is in the works is a memoir about what it was like to grow up in these two faiths that technically were opposed to each other, but adhered to a lot of these values of Christian supremacy we've been talking about and yeah. cutting off the worldview that I was meant to have. Ooh, yeah. Sitting with that for a second. Cutting off the worldview mm-hmm. that I was meant to have. Well, because how I describe it is like at 11 years old, 9, 11, somewhere in that range, I knew, and and that a lot of this is retrospective, know, knowing what I know now as a therapist. Yeah. I knew that I was attracted to girls and boys. I knew that there was nothing wrong with being gay or queer. It just seemed so organic to me. I knew that I was this budding outspoken feminist that so many of things my parents said were right, just weren't like resonating with me. But when you're a kid, you've learned to fake it really well. 
At least that's what I did as a defense because I knew I could be punished or my life could be made hell if I didn't Mm. accept it. So Mm. that's very much what I mean by the worldview I was supposed to have. Mm. Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. There was a, a, for me, there was a lot of, um, yeah, protecting myself Mm -hmm. from that thing, from like physical abuses, my father, all that stuff. And I wonder, like, I was going to ask you about this because that sort of me shutting down, me sort of like hiding a lot of that. I did a lot of that as a sensitive kid in a messy and scary space. I did a lot of shutting down and guarding my heart. Is that is that a type or a form of dissociation? It very well can be. Yeah. yeah. It, yet, I think that's the kind of dissociation that is normal. That mm-hmm. is... Mm-hmm protective. So when we talk about dissociation, if we're really boiling, excuse me, if we're really boiling it down to its simplest definition and context, it's to divide, to sever, to separate from something. Mm -hmm. And we usually do it to either protect ourselves or to get a need met. So what you described to me can be very viewed. and, And I like these, these definitions or these descriptions of dissociation as it could be adaptive, it could be maladaptive, it could be both. And that's terminology we get from EMDR therapy that Mm. adaptive is different. What's adaptive for you may not be adaptive for me. Uh, Things that start adaptive can become maladaptive. Like as a kid, I daydreamed chronically, constantly. Mm. And that was a big part of what really brought my dissociative world into shape. And it was very much of what kept me safe and sane and protected. Yeah. And then later on, in a lot of ways, it backfired on me. And that's where alcohol became an accelerant. And I've just had to learn to still use my imagination and my daydreaming, not to cut it all off, but in ways that that still serve us, still serve me. Mm-hmm. So imagination is a big piece of empathy. For sure. I'm curious to hear your thoughts more on that as an empathy. Yeah. Person. I mean, I, the, I, so the way I talk about it or frame it often in some of the workshops that I lead is like, I have a slide on uh, empathy and the people who bug us. You know, mm. I, I use that, you know, people who bug us in quotes. And we all like go around the room and we would talk about like a caricature or a type of person or even like a specific person in our lives that mm. bugs us. Right. Mm hmm. And the the goal is not to like get to a point where we're like hugging and like, you know, agreeing to disagree or whatever. It's really the exercise is about like using our imagination enough to soften and be a Mm -hmm. bit more curious. So the one I always use and say often on this show is like any sort of like, like tough dude, like bravado guy who drives a big truck and probably has a Blue Lives Matter flag on his (laughs) truck, you know, and so... Part of my job is like, yes, we probably will never be friends in real life. Mm-hmm. And like, if I am to like maybe hold a little less frustration or anger inside of me, can I use my imagination enough to like create a little bit of story about this guy that's less mm-hmm. oppositional to me? Right. It's lovely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I mean by it. It's lovely. Yeah. That's helpful. Right. Cause like, Empathy is is about us collectively. It's also about ourselves too, right? And having empathy for ourselves and having, uh, you know, growing our capacity for listening to ourselves and listening to the world and softening into spaces where, because I feel like that that practice helps us be a little less reactive, mm-hmm. see the world in less binary terms, you know, those sorts of things. That's very well put and very helpful to me. <laughs> Misty, uh, my cat is currently walking across our screen where we're talking. This I is love my par- this is my partner in empathy. Aww. So she's we been have with me a long dogs. time. How long? How I've had Misty almost 15 years. Wow. Beautiful yeah. cat. Yep. And we I have, have a dog. Two dogs. Oh, what's your dog's name? Buddy. Buddy. That's a yep. good dog's name. And what about your dogs? Uh, Maddie and Ripley, uh, a couple of rescues, and then we have a horse, two bunnies, and a geriatric chicken. Oh, 
that and the bunnies like and the egg. chicken just like hang out together. They just like snuggle time together, all that. Geriatric chicken sounds like a really good name for a band. Yeah. Yeah. Probably probably like a feminist rock band for sure. I like it. Maybe yeah. I'll form that band one day. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm a geriatric chicken. <laughs> Maybe uh yeah, Riot Girl era band. Um, for sure. I like that. Um so in this this, you know, obviously you talk a lot about dissociation. Mm-hmm. I first want to ask you, like, what is, you know, obviously you've talked very well about like a lot of the the misnomers about it, a lot of like the myths around it, a um, lot of misunderstanding, a lot of like varying opinions even, right? Mm-hmm. Before we get into that, I want to ask you just like for me, like what is the best way that I can be me in my life, daily life, be a better supporter and advocate of folks living with dissociative disorders? I think one of the biggest ways to advocate is to believe that they exist because there's still a lot of doubt in the mental health field about whether or not they're real or if they're just figments of our imagination. I read that and I'm just like, why? Why? Mm -hmm. What is the purpose of that? I think of what my first client I ever treated with DID said, which is, People fear what they don't understand. And I do think there's so many people in our field who are so, this is going to sound like a controversial statement, so I'm going to qualify a little bit, who worship at the shrine of science. Mm. And to be clear, I'm not anti-science. I am all about science, especially in certain areas of inquiry. Yet the human experience and therapy is fundamentally an art. And I'm concerned about my field's tendency to over-science it. If you can't prove it, if you can't show it on a brain scan, although we do have allies and advocates now who are doing that and and have given us as a community a lot of credibility. Uh, yet, even you know a, a new issue that's boiling is a lot of those scientific advocates that we have aren't really wanting to listen to those of us with lived experience mm. who see even someone like me who's a professional with a dissociative disorder speaking out as potentially unprofessional because there's still even in our field people who believe in the disorder this idea that it has to be healed or cured in such a way where you're going to like lose all like you won't even want to talk about it and that's nothing could be further from the truth if you talk to what we generally call the plural community or the dissociative community who are really looking for, sometimes the term is called functional multiplicity. I like the term plurality better. Mm -hmm. Like I'm a person who has a a five-part system and there's different parts that kind of shoot off of our other parts. And we never want to like fuse or integrate or mask in ways we have, because we did do a lot of masking early in our lives. Uh, What is masking? Yeah, so masking is a term that you may hear a lot in the neurodivergence communities and people who have... Uh, forms of neurodivergence like autism or ADHD. It, it's basically this idea of we we can pretend like everything's okay <laughs> to keep you from seeing the real us, usually because it's not safe because we don't we mm-hmm. feel like we'll be judged. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks with dissociative disorders have a part that helps us do that really well. Like that's who I now call my Dr. Jamie part as okay. as an adult. And yes, so. It, it's it's very hard for professionals like me who identify as having a dissociative disorder to be out still. That's changing, fortunately. In the last couple of years, there's been a lot of us getting together, realizing we have to because people are going to keep telling stories about us in our field unless mm. we start speaking more of, of our own truth. So I think, again, the two biggest ways of support is to believe that dissociative disorders are real and we exist. and this this sounds like just good empathetic common sense when you have a mental health heart is to believe people when they tell you how their inner world works, how their mind works. And to realizing this is an important part, which has come out of some controversy in the field this week, that people who are in recovery from anything, whether it be an addictive disorder, dissociative disorder, any mental health disorder can have a lot of pride 
about the fact that we're parts of these communities mm-hmm. that yeah. we, and I don't think it even has to be pride in the fact that we've recovered, but it could be pride in the fact that we're doing our best to survive mm. this thing called life. And for a lot of us, recovery is very much a long and winding road of ups and downs. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's pride in that. It's nothing that a lot of us feel we, we should have to hide, mm. even though many people would like us to. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I'm sorry mm-hmm. that you have to deal with all of your parts have to deal with the, the folks who want you to hide. Um, mm-hmm. I get I like it's can we investigate that a little bit more? Cause I'm I'm just like sure. I'm I I understand, right? Like I understand the idea around we fear what we don't understand. That's mm-hmm. that's a that's that's a thing that exists in the world. And I agree. Believe people, mm-hmm. believe their stories. Believe, you know, I, I agree with that and I I that's how I live my life. And it it you know, hearing you say that is, is upsetting, right? That like you're living in the world and people deny your existence. You know, obviously that exists everywhere, right? In the trans community, et cetera. Right. Help me a little uh, sort of set a little bit more foundation around like the, I mean, maybe this is an impossible task, but around the, the folks and the communities of folks who are, just denying you denying your lived experience like what like if you were to like expound on that like what what would you say well for people who are outright dissociation deniers who don't think that dissociative disorders are a real thing um and even for those people who believe in dissociative disorders we can hear some of this talk around well they they're faking it because nobody would want to admit that they have such a condition. Mm. And I think some people, as I said, who are the outright deniers, it's it's just an absolute commitment to what can be proven in scientific binaries. Mm. A lot of it is I think they lack their own. Hmm. And this is a blanket statement. You know, I, I, I'm certainly not here to judge anybody's individual experience, but I don't feel a great deal of empathy to use kind of the, the theme of the show from them. And I think when I use my imagination, using mm-hmm. your, th- your thought to have some empathy for them, mm-hmm. a lot of the backstory I create is that they were never shown how to fully mm. use their imagination or their inner world or their creativity. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, cause I know this very well could have been me. So I'll call myself out for it that I, so tell you a story. I literally went running from my first PhD program. So this was in 2006. I was enrolled at a state school. And this was years after I was like the high school valedictorian and the star kid who did everything. And I was expected to go Ivy league Mm -hmm. and something inside me just said, no, like, no. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I think how a lot of us wrote it up was, uh, she doesn't want to be a regular fish in a small pond. She wants to be a a big fish at a, whatever. I think inside I knew I would not be safe at an institution like that. Because I would have to mask and hide and not be myself and not show how my mind worked. So fast forward this to 2006, I'm in this PhD program at the state school. I was meeting with the three advisors. I was about six weeks into the program and everything in me said, you're not going to be able to be yourself here. Mm. Who you are is not safe here. And I literally went running from the building. And A lot of people I've met who are more academically minded over the years of trying to be a professional and have a career in this area have made me feel a similar way. Mm. Yet I have forged ahead in the integrity of knowing who I am and doing the work I want to do. And I have had to do a lot of foot in both worlds type of work, which I think is masking. 
where there's Dr. Jamie, the academic who's, excuse me, was at least trained that way. Cause I ended up finding a program that really trained me well, but helped to work with my mind. And then there's Jamie, the human who honestly known thinks that so much of how the healing industry works is bullshit because it is one of the most broken. I mean, we, we say it's a broken system, but it's one of those in oppressive cultures systems are there to serve the people in power. And that's a lot of how the mental health system works these days. And I mean, I I've admitted this on other videos I've made, so I'm happy to share it on your podcast that I'm even in kind of a crisis crossroads right now about who I am as a teacher, as a therapist and can we work within a broken system or does it need to be dismantled altogether? And what does that look like? Yeah. Big questions. Yeah. Yeah. Today I I feel grateful that I can ask them. There you go. And not have to like go and run and hide and be Mm. afraid that like the big bad is going to come after me because I'm not doing what, Jesus wants me to do or whomever that figure looming six over me Jesus. wants me to do gun toting oh, like Jesus <laughs> six pack Jesus is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I hear that. I had a Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Mullen on the podcast. Um, nice. Uh, decolonizing therapy. Do you know? Yes. Yeah. Great, great work. Yeah. Amazing. And we talked about the, the healthcare system, the mental health system, and just the, the, frank burnout of of therapists and then certainly the inaccessibility from patients and client you know clients and all that stuff it feels yeah i think you're right it's broken but it's like meant to be broken to yeah to 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 Mm -hmm. support and and continue to promote and and push up the the folks in charge um and, yeah. uh, and and I and I'll go here with you. The example yeah. I give, or the call out that I give in dissociation made simple, and I am fine with everybody knowing this because I don't think it's a secret that the people who tend to suffer the most and need the most care, who can't pay, who can't access via any kind of insurance, are generally relegated to community mental health, where care is limited. And where honestly, the best clinicians are needed to work, but community mental health doesn't treat those of us who are very well trained and very Mm -hmm. committed to getting further training very well. So we all leave and go to private practice. And this is something I've had crises about over the years. Like, am I, by, by making what I know I'm worth and what I've earned and what my training has helped me to do, am, am I just perpetuating more of this system or ought I be committing some time to working with the people who who need us the most? Because I don't begrudge therapists for wanting to make a decent living because we, and so many essential workers that I I could name so many other professions yet. I, I therapists are my lane Hmm. are just so beaten up and undertreated and underpaid. And I struggle with, being someone who's subjectively speaking a powerful figure in that system hmm. because I I do have a successful practice and a successful teaching career and wondering if we really are doing any good <laughs> systemically. I mean, I know, and what keeps me heartened is to know that we all do good work one-on-one and that even those therapists who are currently in the trenches of community mental health, where I was and many of us have been, are doing the best they can with what they've been given yet. I, and I'm somebody who loves sports myself came up in sports. A lot of people close to me are are sporting people yet. I am going to, I'm going to be that snowflake that says if we paid our therapists and our healers, what we pay our athletes, then we might solve a lot of the crises with mental health and addiction and just general unrest in this country. Yeah, throw some of that money toward teachers as well. Teachers, thank you. They're yes. another important, underappreciated profession on that list. Yeah, it's kind of bonkers. I I like what you said about 
and this is how I frame it sometimes because I I am I am someone and I'm, I I know you are as well just can get overwhelmed by by things and and wanting to do good and wanting to make an impact and what I always tell myself is I need to be useful mm-hmm. and and continue to use my privilege to like be useful to be helpful and I, and I think a lot of that happens in those one-on-one small moments like you said yes right um and those are the that's the change that happens maybe in these systems that that feel so part of us like i was just talking to my brother about capitalism yesterday and just like feeling so disgusted by it so so (laughs) oppressed by it uh you know and then how can we you know how can we how can we pull an inside job right i don't know i don't know either and right now i'm sinking into the i don't know and i'm reminded i learned years ago in my recovery that those are the three most spiritual words in my vocabulary yeah i don't know and yet i think something we already feel like we share in common is we're we're seekers we're searchers we're willing to investigate curiosity yeah yeah, and th- th- with I don't know comes like opportunity, right? You know, this, and I think capitalism plays a role in this, certainly. But like, and, and as you said, science too, right? Any sort of thing that, that sort of feeds off of our desire to like have to be right or mm-hmm. find answers or check boxes or cross a finish line, that's not, that's not the world. Right. Like that's not reality. Those are like the binary systems of capitalism and, and healthcare or whatever, but that's not nuance. That's not the in between. You know, we're bypassing so much. We're forgetting about a lot of people. Yep. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So for folks who don't have a lot of understanding around dissociative disorders. How would you describe them? How do you frame them? Like what, what are some examples you share to help people? Yeah. So we all dissociate, like we established earlier in this, uh, to, to cope, to protect, to have our needs met. I would say people with dissociative disorders to put it really layperson's terms, do it with a higher degree of intensity. Okay. Do it either more often or there's an even greater degree of fragmentation or separating that occurs where we do become, let's say, cut off from the reality around us. That's a lot of how derealization is defined. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a condition called otherwise specified dissociative disorder, meaning I'm kind of one step away diagnostically from what may be considered like full-blown DID DID, or dissociative identity disorder. So the metaphor that I like to use is my various parts are like passengers in a car and the adult chronological 43 year old Jamie, whether it's kind of our Dr. Jamie side or our Jamie side, we're the ones driving the car. We're the Mm -hmm. ones fronting yet we have three other chronological passengers and their parts on boards who are always commenting. Mm-hmm. about the road sometimes they take naps which is nice uh <laughs> and yeah it, it's mm. just when we were first diagnosed it was like our life suddenly made sense because a lot of people i talk to with dissociative systems or dissociative disorders because there's a lot of accusation that therapists put the ideas there etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm. but everybody i've i've talked to at least in my investigations have said we've just kind of always been this way we never really had the language to name it yeah. And that's a lot of where where therapists can assist. Yeah. Okay. And you know, please tell me if this is insensitive or out of line this question it. or comment. How for you uh Dr. Jamie Marich, how do you, like how do your various parts show up and in, in what yeah. context do they? It's a great question. Love that question, and I'm definitely cool to answer it. So, how I describe it for me, and the the distinction I want to make is that a lot of people with DID 
using the car metaphor, might better describe themselves as one of the other passengers totally takes over the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And But even that can be nuanced system to system. And I have another good friend who uses the metaphor of the garden to explain herself because she doesn't see herself as having like a core adult that presents in the world. It's just all a system of parts. And mm-hmm. she has a, a legal name and an adult persona. And yet who she is internally is, is a garden, which I think is lovely. So how how it plays for me. Uh, so it, it's almost like how I've really come come to learn it is it, it's Jamie who you're talking to who's driving. But this whole Dr. Jamie, Jamie persona is almost like more of a shapeshifter in the front seat. Like we can show up and even as some combination of the two, but we're fundamentally the one driving. So we have a four-year-old part who is very close to how we chronologically were when we were four. And if she's not happy with something, she's going to let it be known until we address her. Until we attend to her in a way that she feels at least hurt. And sometimes that's telling her, you know, this is, this is things we do in our head. It's okay to lay down with your teddy bear in the backseat. And this Mm -hmm. is why you see a lot of dissociative adults. We love our stuffed animals because Mm -hmm. they're really there for the young ones inside of us. I have a whole big collection of them in my office, in my bedroom. And when we went through a really horrible spell in 2016, uh, we, our marriage was ending. Someone was elected president. It was not a good year. Not a good year. And the four-year-old was so activated and crying all the time and wanting to be heard and wanting to be seen. It was like she cried so loud and got behind us as the driver of the car and closed our eyes to get us wow. to crash the car so we'd pay attention to her. Yeah, and the fact wow. that she was hurting so much. And that was a big part of what got us back into treatment. So like right now, four, four is largely okay. Uh, she, she has moments where she gets triggered like anybody. But hmm, she is, and I've had people ask me, well, wh- like, why would you still want like this child on board with you? And it's like, okay, think of your inner child. And we we use that language, and and that's very much what she is. She's just a little bit more real to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, she she really feels like family inside. Where she's me, yet I I do feel like I have a responsibility to tend to her. Yeah. And she is very much like why I still want her around. You know, she's my light. She's my compassion. She's the one that even though she was hurt at that age very much, she still holds a lot of our hope and the goodness of people. Mm which sometimes could be a problem because sometimes she could hold a little too much hope in the goodness Mm -hmm. of people. And that's where nine comes in because nine is, is our more cynical Uh, nine. When we were in a more unhealed state in our life, held a lot of our self-injury capacity. Mm. Now nine is just a little bit of, (laughs) she's got the edge. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's what her healed looks like. Instead of, you know, turning some of this anger and rage inward, she's the one who can show up to turn it outward when we need it. And mm. she's there a lot now as we're doing a lot of this advocacy work. And yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't like her for it. They they would prefer the sweet little child of four or the professional Dr. Jamie. Yet I think anybody who has a dissociative system will tell you. If you shut down or ignore any of your parts, they're only going to get louder Mm. or they're only going to get more destructive. And yes, a lot of our parts are connected with destructive behaviors or behaviors that have gotten us in trouble. But like that earlier conversation we had about why do people start drinking? Why do people start using? It's because there's something in them that needs to be addressed. And for those of us who, who are, have learned to, to love our system and love our parts, we're, we're able to do this and yeah. it's, it's cool. Um, I, interesting point since, you know, I'm sick right now. Uh, we were often sick in our late teens, uh, as a response to stress, this kind of sickness, we've not been this sick lingering in a while. So our other third major part is 19 who formed when we were 19 and our body, she's feeling a lot of this right now. Mm. A lot of our body feels very young right now, being the sick again, like she was a lot. 
And that's usually a sign for us. There's something in her we need to pay attention to. She's getting our attention. Got it. Yeah. So I hope that was reasonably helpful. (laughs) Very helpful. I, I appreciate you painting the picture. And I'm curious, like, as as I'm talking to you, you don't need to share. You can just maybe mm-hmm. yes or no question. Like, were your other parts, your four, your nine, your 19, making commentary as we were talking? Interesting. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> now, now I'm thinking back. and I mean, I think 19 was making commentary because she was coughing so much or mm. she was the one feeling a lot of the cop. No, I think, you know, largely during the day, honestly, no, and I will say no, they were not making commentary because we as a system feel very safe with you. I always say, and I I think this is helpful to, to your listeners, we evaluate a person's professional credibility Mm. by how young, how safe our youngest part feels in your presence. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And usually, like, if there's some doubt, that's when they're making the commentary. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. goosebumps. Yeah. I, I also like to imagine your nine being the lead singer in Geriatric Chicken. Let's make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So your book, Dissociation Made Simple, mm-hmm. I see it as a a way in right to to recognize that Mm -hmm. dissociation is normal as you said there's a way in for lay people like myself to not be scared of it to not Mm -hmm. carry fear with it to learn about it and then as a way in to learn about dissociative identity disorder and other dissociative disorders would that be true very accurate description yeah okay and your book is out in the world it came out in january how does it feel Right, it came out in January. Am I January tenth, January tenth. Yeah, it it feels amazing, and I just want to shout out my publisher, North Atlantic Books. Uh, I think they were the ones who introduced us. Yeah, and I've done now my last three or four projects with them, and of all the publishers I've worked with, they are just so incredibly aligned with my values and really let me get personal like this. Love it. Because if I would have tried to take this idea to so many other publishers that publish therapist books, it would be, it's too personal. You're talking about yourself too much. It's mm. stick with, <laughs> stick with the neuroscience, stick with this, stick with that. And at this point in my career, I feel comfortable saying to such folks, you're missing the point. And North Atlantic Books gets it. So, I, I mean, whenever I talk about how does the book feel being out in the world, just, you know, immense gratitude to Shana and, and the team there for, for seeing the importance of a work like this. And it feels good because this is the next step in my evolution towards writing more personally, as I said, the, the memoir about my spiritual journeys coming next. Oh. And I just, this is the book I wanted to write on dissociation. And years ago, so how how I describe my journey with coming out about my dissociative disorder, I dipped my toe in. Mm. Like in 2011, I started, mm, yeah, I have a lot of complex trauma with dissociation attached. And then as I would feel safe in certain audiences, I would disclose more. And then in 2018, mm. really after this big healing experience that I talked about, I was very much left with this place of I am who I am. And I'm and I knew I wasn't going to teach or really write on dissociation until I felt I could be out in the world unapologetically. And here we yeah. are. Love that. And people, I'm either people's cup of tea or we're not. Or they don't teach drink tea, I guess. <laughs> yes. Or they um, think well, my tea is too cup bitter. Of tea. Oh, thank you. You're Mom. my big, hot, steaming cup of peppermint tea. That's amazing. <laughs> and now I well, picture the geriatric chicken holding a peppermint cup of oh tea. Oh my gosh. Well, because she's geriatric we do have to like kind of like drink your morning water you know we hold the water up sometimes (laughs) we put water in a shot glass we never use we just have right and we like you know feed her food and yeah you know she needs a little she needs a little guidance a little help like we all do love that her name's egghead great name great (laughs) name so silly um and uh we'll plug plug the things in a bit um Let's let's talk about our empathy heroes. Mm-hmm. We always kind of start wrapping up the show talking about um, yeah. 
the people in our lives, even characters from stories we we are connected to and 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 feel their empathetic, compassionate, feely people in the world we we look up to. And I I you know as we're recording this, my empathy heroes are are well as we're recording this, and I've said this before. And and this is the problem. I've said this very sentence before. As we're recording this, there's been another mass shooting. Yes. And it breaks my heart and it enrages me and and I I I'm flummoxed by it. And so my empathy ears are those who are writing your Congress people, writing your senators, texting uh six four four three to to or texting act ACT to six four four three or six four four three three rather. Um that's uh through Moms Demand Action and Shannon Watts organization. Mm-hmm. Just it's it's not, you know, drag drag shows, books, reading, uh trans community. These these are these are portals to empathy and joy and love mm-hmm. and collective care and community. And guns are portals to death and killing, uh, and killing children, teens and children. The number one killer of teens and children in the United States. Horrifying, horrifying. So do your part, do everything that you can to make your voice heard on this matter. Cause it's, it just keeps happening. And I, I just, I am fucking tired of it. Okay. And as you were talking before you mentioned it, my head went to my empathy heroes are drag queens and drag kings and drag performers. Love it. Yeah. Uh, I have several friends who are performers and always fill me with a sense of just unadulterated joy and loving and accepting who we are. There's technically not a drag, a drag queen, but a pantomime dame, pantomime dame, as they're often called in the UK, called Mama G, Mama G stories on TikTok. And we just started following her. And talk about like somebody all of our parts just feel mm. enlivened by and mm-hmm. happy to to be in the presence. And I think it's really similar. My other empathy hero I highlighted in this interview was Daryl and Mike, my sponsor and his husband. Again, they yeah. are people who have what I want and have met me with such unapologetic acceptance of who I am, who we are. And they're my gay dads. They're they're the dads I needed. Mm. And now I'm lucky to have them. Mm. Love it. It's there is like this, there is acceptance. Like I I I think of like how we get to a point of acceptance. And and it is a lot of like being present, right? It is mm-hmm. a lot of like tell me about you. Like I want to know more. Like you are worthy of being seen and heard and loved and cherished and nourished and uplifted and supported. Tell me about it, please. Mm-hmm. I'm here. And, and I think that that is a, that is a skill that is a muscle that everyone can learn to get better at. Yes. Well, I'm preaching to you as a choir, um, but you know, and maybe my listeners. So listeners mm-hmm. tell the, tell the world about it too. Um, and, and, uh, and to that, yeah. I want to yes. say, yes. if it feels like a hopeless cause, and I think I need to say this more to remind myself today, I could have been headed for a life where I would have been out there wanting to get drag shows banned mm. and support Second Amendment, abusive Second Amendment rights, had I kind of followed this evangelical or path that I was masking behind for a long time. Yeah. And as I've shared with you, even though I knew that wasn't me, there there's so many kids out there who I know are just ready to have a seed planted for them to mm. crawl themselves out of that world. And yeah, I think if anything, that's why I still do this. There's a, a, you saying that um, made me think of that HBO show, Somebody Somewhere. Have you seen this? I've not, but now I want to. It's it's lovely. It's with Bridget. I'm forgetting your last name, great actor. Um, and there's this moment where, so she used to sing, like sing, like in mm. public opera mm. and stuff. And and she's kind of lost it in the face of some trauma and grief. 
and she finds you know middle of america town and she she's like back home and she finds this group that is kind of like a queer variety show of mm-hmm. sorts love it she goes and finds her voice again and it's just like this like beautiful collective of of you know ragamuffins just like doing what brings them joy and having the space to do it and it's that type of thing mm-hmm. is the thing that gives me hope too for sure yeah yeah it's a good show i recommend it well check it out <laughs> uh well uh dr jamie marich uh where can the listeners connect with you where can they order your book all of that all of that goodness the easiest place is a website that we set up for the book, www.redefinetherapy.com. So Redefine Therapy is a hashtag I started using in 2015, and I see it as more of a website and a name that I'll be using. So redefinetherapy.com is the official book site of, of Dissociation Made Simple. We put all the interviews up, which will include this one on that site and other free resources that are available, including information on, on how to get the book. So I also have a jamiemarriage.com, which is my general website, traumamadesimple.com, which is another resources site. Excuse me. You can always Google my name. I have a big YouTube presence on TikTok and Instagram. I am trauma therapist rants at trauma therapist rants. So <laughs> if you like more of this snarky side of me, please uh, check it out. I love it. Well, listeners, all of those links will be in the show notes at feelyhuman.co. Thank you so much for being a part of this. It was such a joy, such an honor to 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 connect, to to talk about feely things, to um for you to just share about about dissociation and stuff. It's really, it's really quite an honor. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for asking beautiful questions and giving us the space. Always. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring, pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy. (laughs) 